Hey guys, it's Annie. For anyone who follows serial spirits, you're probably aware by now that the biggest paranormal event of the year is coming up this weekend. After a two-year hiatus, the Mothman Festival is back for its 20th annual gathering. This weekend, September 17th, 18th, and 19th, the streets of downtown Point Pleasant, West Virginia will be filled with speakers, vendors, and weirdos alike, all gathering to remember one of the most famous cryptids of all time, Mothman. We will be there along with many of our friends from the Unbelievers podcast and folks who have contributed to Serial Spirits over the past four years, and we would love to meet you there. In honor of the Mothman Festival this weekend, we will be playing encore episodes of our own series that we released beginning in 2020 entitled I Am Cold, The Story of Indrid. In this series, Shay and I dove deep into the story behind Mothman, UFO, and extraterrestrial sightings that began in West Virginia and spread across the nation. Research that took us deeper into the worlds of UFOs, government conspiracies, technology, and big business than we could ever have imagined, all culminating with bizarre, paranormal, and synchronous experiences happening in our own lives that we could not and still can't explain. For those of you listening to this series for the first time, we hope you find it thought-provoking and that it inspires you to open your minds to things you never imagined could be possible, but just might be. If you're listening to this again, may you be reminded that the truth is still out there, waiting to be discovered. In part one of I Am Cold, the story of Indrid, we introduced you to Indrid Cold, the mysterious time and space traveler who appeared to West Virginia native Woody Derenberger. Their story won a friendship between worlds that Woody and members of his family and inner circle have recounted for decades. Looking back to Derenberger's encounter with Indrid Cold, we cannot help but wonder why was he chosen why was Indrid Cold here, and what was the significance behind the areas where he chose to make himself known? When Tanya describes her encounters with Indrid Cold, she stated he is from a peaceful planet called Lanulos. His mission on Earth is one of unity. The other description of Cold by the mysterious Terry Wrist, the story previously recounted by Connor Randall in Episode 1, is one of intrigue a fugitive hiding on our planet from unknown alien beings. No matter which side of Indrid Cold you choose to believe, there is one fact. He did not come here alone.
This is Serial Spirits, the podcast, and the search for injured cold. My name is Annie Weibel. I'm a paranormal investigator, podcaster, and social media host, and I've dedicated more than a decade of my life to explaining the unexplainable. What you'll hear in this podcast is one of the most bizarre stories we've encountered yet, one that has changed the way we've looked at everything. And my name is Brendan Shea. For over a decade, I've been exploring the supernatural and the unexplained. This story we are about to tell was one of the first stories so many years ago that led me down this road and furthered my interest into finding some answers, some truth to what we as humans can only begin to comprehend. This podcast helps share some of these stories to all corners of the globe. We leave it up to you whether you believe it or not. The man known as Indrid Cold said he was from a planet called Lanulos, located in the Ganymede galaxy. Ganymede, however, is also one of the moons of Jupiter. So many similar encounters of contactee stories claim to have met men from Ganymede. A group of men in Mexico claimed to have been taken to this place in 1965. Again in 1968, in South America, another group of contactees claimed to have met people from Ganymede. This to me seems significant, because so many people have claimed so many similar stories. Mary Heyer was a newspaper reporter for an Athens, Ohio-based newspaper called the Athens Messenger. She managed the paper's office on 6th Street in downtown Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Heyer covered the strange stories of the events taking place in the Ohio Valley in 1966 and 1967 and would team up with John Kill to act as a liaison between him and the locals of the strange encounters. After Woody Derenberger went public with his strange encounter with the spaceman on the highway, strange stories began to make their way into Heyer's small office. Early in November 1966, a man walked into Heyer's office with a very strange story to tell. The man was sincere, but very distraught, and Heyer listened intently as he began to tell his strange tale. On November 2nd, 1966, The man recounted that he and another man were driving home from Point Pleasant, West Virginia to their home in Marietta, Ohio, down Interstate 77. It was raining that night, but it was just a routine drive for the two men. As they came closer to Parkersburg, West Virginia, everything began to change. Through the pelting rain, an elongated, cigar-shaped object appeared through the clouds and began to descend right in front of the man's vehicle. As the man recounted, his eyes widened and his face became concerned. Higher, writing intently, began to realize that this was not an ordinary story. Mary Higher had not heard any other UFO stories, but she believed this man because she knew him. His story continued. He said as their car stopped, The craft hovered above the ground 
and a man emerged from a hatch on the side. The man approached the two men, and he was grinning at them. The man had his arms crossed under his armpits. He was wearing a black coat and dark pants. The driver rolled down his window as the man moved closer, and they had a very short conversation. This smiling man inquired on who the two men were, where they came from, and where they were headed. He also inquired about the time. The men stared in amazement and said nothing back. The grinning man stood there for a moment longer, then turned, walked back into the craft, stepped inside, and the craft shot up into the night sky. The men sat in shock and debated on whether or not they should tell anyone. Hire would be the first person to recount this tale. Kivon Shaw, a young man from Parkersburg, West Virginia, and co-worker of Woodrow Derenberger, would have encounters with people from Lanulos. He claimed to have had many visits from Injured Cold and Carl Ardo. He was the only other person on Earth that Woody Derenberger could communicate with telepathically, and later planned to go and live on the planet Lanulos. Shaw, according to Woody, did not talk too much about his encounters, as he was threatened by his boss to not get mixed up in UFO business, or he would lose his job. Shaw kept to himself and only told his family of his encounters. I don't have my camera on. Oh, shit. Hold on one second. It's not... uh... All right, can you hear me now? Here he is. I mean, I'm terrible at this, these things. Annie and I wanted to tell the story of Woodrow Derenberger and his encounter with the enigmatic yeah, well, injured cold. But the more we searched for the truth, the more mysteries we uncovered. Similarities just too coincidental to overlook. We needed help. So we brought in a friend, a retired police officer and MUFON researcher from my home state of New York. I'm uh, Chris Damaray. I live in South Carolina. I was a police officer in Westchester County, New York for 20 years. I retired uh, from Yonkers and I moved to South Carolina. I got involved in MUFON down here, I think around 2013 and became a field investigator. And now I'm the state section director for the upstate of South Carolina. Uh, I think it's like Firestick County. And I'm also a member of the guard, the state guard down here, the state comps. Basically, I've been interested in the study of unknown aerial phenomena since I was probably a child. Got interested in one uh, through my aunt, one of my, my grandma's sisters out in Pennsylvania. She was pretty much a pioneer and a female pioneer in that type of study way back in the 40s and 50s uh, before a lot of women got involved in that. She, so I, I think that's kind of what got me hooked back then. And uh, so I have the time now and got interested in it. And I have a state director here. who's uh, Her name is uh, Cheryl Gilmore. She's you know, she's pretty awesome. She's a good mentor, and uh, she leaves it open to me for whatever I want to do. She's always behind me and always willing to help and guide, and I think it's a big asset. So I compiled nice. quite, a, quite a few uh, statistics to this point that I hope is helpful. I hope it's helpful. I think it'll give direction to, to isolate some of these incidences and what you're looking for. Injured cold, or being similar to injured cold, 
made themselves known all over the Appalachian region and in other maybe more strategic places in the United States. It was something Connor Randall said to us in his interview in Part 1 that piqued my attention. He mentioned bridges and borders, and it seemed, yes, that could be the key. But why? Well, let's take a look at some of these areas where these contacts happened. When you take the area of West Virginia that you had first asked about, and it's not, a, it's not an accident that you work your, your way out of West Virginia, and once you start working your way out, you see more and more of these pieces falling into place. And uh, there are states where there are counties that have you know, very few sightings, very few, if some don't have any at all. And then you get to areas where uh, you're, you're looking at specific areas that, that, that you want to look at. And you're seeing just, you know, numerous sightings, numerous reports, different types of craft, EVE sightings, the triangles. You know, the triangles are huge in certain areas. Um, you, you, you have air triangle craft, but it, you can definitely see that there's a pattern. And it's not a coincidence that there's a pattern. It's just drawing it out and putting it together and, and uh, trying to come up with some sort of a conclusion. After his encounter on the highway, Darren Berger would contact local authorities the local sheriff and news media would sit down the following day to talk about his experience. Present at this interview was an Air Force representative who later reported to his superiors at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Looking into this area of Ohio, including Marietta and its surrounding counties, this is what we found. Okay, so Wright-Patterson is in... Green County, which is in the southwestern portion of the state. And it's a fairly decent sized county. So so I went back and I, Green County against different reporting um, agencies, uh, MUFON and NICAP and a couple other different uh, reporting agencies. And just over the last it looks like about 25 years. There's 123 specific sightings in Green County. Uh, that's just that's just UAV, wh- whatever they've reported, discs, uh, spheres, different types of, of crafts. That's 123, which is which is quite a lot. Uh, the contiguous county of Franklin, which is one over to uh, eastern part of direction of Green, has 276 sightings of various. Again, various craft, spheres, triangles, cylinders. There's a, a whole different, uh, whole different accumulation of these types of sightings. So right there in, in that area of Wright Pat, you have about about 400 sightings in that area. So UAV in Green and Franklin. So even if you take Delaware, Licking, Franklin, and Green, which were in that area of, even if you say Dark County, Preble, Butler, Green, there's six of them down in that area of right path. So they would be within flying distance of right path easily. They're just cross, you're crossing over just a couple of contiguous um, counties. You're looking at about 600 UAV sightings just in that one area. And then when you're looking at cases of, uh, of EVE sightings itself, you're looking at about 45 in that area. Over the span of about 25 years, going back uh, more specifically 25 years, but, if, but I can get records that show several more going back to about 1947. They started to they start to appear a little more in the 50s and 60s, more so than 1940s. I don't I don't know if it's because uh, 
these aren't the records that show it. I don't know if it was certain suppression by the Air Force at that time, although the Air Force was pretty open about it. But uh, some of these other agencies were getting reports of BB sightings way back in the 40s. But you could see just by looking at the statistics that in, in those six counties, in that area around around Wright Pat, there's about 600 UAV. And I'm, I'm going to estimate just by quickly looking through these notes that there's about 45 EBE, which are extraterrestrial biological entities. Um, most of these sightings, if not all of them, are vetted and they're noted so that if they come across as hoaxes or unsubstantiated, they'll, they, they post that. So you're not wasting your time looking at them. And these are none of the ones that I have marked are unsubstantiated. They're all they've all been claimed and they've all investigated. MUFON keeps count of the investigators names. The other agencies, they generally don't. Sometimes they're just statistically. You can see a, you can see a pattern just emerging. So even if you take this as a microcosm, you can see just in that one little area of Ohio, that you, you just pulled out all all of these sightings in that one little area. That, like I said before, it's not coincidental. It, it, it can't be coincidental. The numbers don't show that. The number of encounters in this area is staggering. In this tri-county region, there are three large airports. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Columbus International Airport, and Rickenbacker. It is believed that the military plays a role in UFO phenomenon and EBE encounters. And Chris described some of those encounters. Okay, so there are a few right off the bat that I'm reading that jump out to me. Um, two of them are, are very similar to each other and took place within two days of each other. And it says that five to seven beings were in this person's house at, at night and they could feel their presence. They initially thought maybe it was sleep paralysis, but then they woke up and they described them as being uh, tall and, and dark and, and complexion long, dark figures and a definitive human-like outline. And then there's another random one that I have here that I just picked out. It said that another person heard commotion in the upstairs of their house. They went to an area of the upstairs bedrooms and they there appeared to be two gray aliens that were inside the room. They were wearing jumpsuits and belts. When they looked at them, it caused them to freeze and they weren't able to move. And then after that, their description is pretty vague. It doesn't get into what happened afterwards. Another one here uh, says basically the same thing. They were in their living room and they heard some noises upstairs in their second floor and they went upstairs and there was great looking alien being there. Are these all recent sightings? Or are they? So this one is from not too long ago. I mean, if you're talking about grays in the area, that's one of the things that Tanya says that there was humanoids that cold was fighting off. So this could have been a reason why he was in this area. Right. That's yeah. And and so that was the basis of the things going on out there in Area 51 and other other research facilities where uh, if there were claims that these are nefarious beings, whatever their interaction is with humankind, whether it's based on some type of an agreement, but it's always comes down to them and having some type of relationship with the military. And military is only subjective and clear, you know, yeah. warfare. The Greys have been seen in this area for many years. As we heard in part one, Indrid Cold was here to keep the peace, to protect humanity from other races of aliens like the Greys and humanoids, according to Derenberger's account. If we go back to Connor Randall's account of Terry Wrist, Cold is a refugee hiding from the Greys. 
Is this the reason Indrid Cold was in this area? There's one in, in, in Ohio on February 5th, 1967. A humanoid sighting, an object that was described as an ellipse, landed. A humanoid emerged and placed small spheres on the ground nearby the craft. Uh, witnesses observed them interacting with other human beings. Further, and an up-to-date research showed that there were m- more cases of this type associated with the same type of humanoid sighting and interaction during that year. And they claim at least 14 were found. So whoever whoever investigated this initial report put this in. So then here's one from 1981, August 19, 1981, in Franklin. It's the witnesses claiming that it was it was daytime. Uh, she was driving along a highway when a brilliant silver object descended over her vehicle and forced her to pull off to the side of the road. She was taken on board by several seven-foot-tall humanoids in the ground. And then it happened again. February 15th, 1981, a brilliant white light that began filling uh, this woman's bedroom woke her and a witness that she so she got out of her bed, looked through her window and saw a, a bright hovering disc-shaped light or object out in her in her yard. And she claims to have lost time. So she went and she reported this incident. They had her go to a went to a regressive hypnosis. Uh, it doesn't specify how many times she went. But during these under hypnosis, she recalled being taken on board by several seven-foot-tall humanoids with pointed chins and yellow, yellow eyes. And then a few days prior to that, there was another incident that's pretty much the same. This person saw the light in, in the bedroom, uh, woke, woke her up, and then she looked outside and saw a similar type dish-shaped object in her yard hovering above her, I guess, lawn outside and under hypnosis. She was also into a uh, regressive hypnosis. She reports being taken aboard a similar type craft by seven foot tall humanoids. Same thing with uh, yellow eyes, pointed chins. Didn't they describe um, Ingrid Cold as having that type of a chin? Wasn't there something distinctive about the way he looked? I think it was just the way he smiled. But uh, I know that, you know, humanoids were basically who they were at war with all the time, according to Tanya and Woody. What role do industry and technology play in these sightings? We don't have a definitive answer if they play a role at all, but the connections we began to see were puzzling. With many of these sightings and close encounters, some of the same industries appear in close proximity to the flap areas. Urbana, Ohio is one city that is home to one of these companies. Largest concentration is in that area of Ohio around Wright Pat, which is like I said, it's if you take Delaware County, Licking, Franklin, Green, Butler, Preble, and Dark County, you're you're approaching 500 sightings. So there's a massive amount of sightings, and then if you go over to Washington County, where you have certain industries. So the the basis of all this was the backing from where these industries are, finding out where the industries are, taking the name of the town or city that they were in, expanding it to the county, then finding out if there was any other industries in those counties, and then going into the research aspect of it, finding out how many sightings were being reported. Um, so I was able to, on some of the MUFON reports, find different areas by county. 
on some of them, they're generic and you have to go through every one of them and you have to highlight out each specific county. It gives you a good idea of where they are in association with other counties. I also took some, you know, to, to try to get an idea of whether this is, because you don't want the numbers to reflect what you believe it's going to be, you know, so you want to get a couple of counties just in random. And okay, so let me find out. And you could see that there's not as many, you know, so it's not like you're pushing the numbers to form, you know, a basis of your of your idea, of your research. You can easily go back in and check against it like a placebo, you know what I mean? You give it something, you're just going to look at it or I'll pay, I can pick any random county and shows that the concentrations of sightings are definitely around the area of certain industry, uh, tech industry, avionics, around the um, small airports that are in the areas, the Air Force bases, even some larger military installations. It's helpful to look at some of the smaller airports. Those are where the military and the government lease the smaller airport, and that's where sometimes they'll test experimental craft because they're so remote. A lot of times they aren't seen. On the other hand, when they are seen, that's when it draws a lot of attention because people aren't used to seeing that. So let me ask you this question here. So while looking at this area in Ohio specifically, we know that there's a huge amount of sightings in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is there. We know that there's also this aerospace company there named uh, we know that just south of Dayton, Ohio, is Cincinnati, Ohio, which is right on the river. Across the river there is Kentucky, West Virginia. Further down the river is where I live in Huntington, and then further up the river there, just south of, of Athens, Ohio, is Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Further northeast from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, is Parkersburg, West Virginia, where this encounter with injured coal took place. The correlation with these industry, the natural resources of West Virginia, say, and the rivers, all that plays a factor, do you believe, in this, why these things are here, why these beings are being seen here, why these crafts are being seen here? Physically, honestly, say that you think that it's all tied together? Given that information, in what you just said, if you, if you look at the map of counties of West Virginia, if you look at the map of counties of Ohio, you can see where up along that corridor of Ohio and uh, around Wright Pat, you can see the concentrations of sightings in that area. If you look at West Virginia and you look from Marshall County down the border through Wood, through Jackson, through Mason, through Cabell, through Wayne County, even if you go to Kanawha County and if you even if you discount Braxton, where you had Sutton and Flatwood, which a lot of people don't associate with this, but I'm not really too sure about that. You can definitely see that there's a correlation. There's statistically it shows that there is. If you take into account EBE sightings in those areas, uh, like we had said before, humanoids uh, and gray aliens and reporting, there, there's definitely some kind of uh, relation between it all there has to be because the numbers are there and it's not like it, none of this is made up it's, it's just accumulating data reading it and seeing that the numbers are showing that there there has to be some kind of relation the beings that are being seen the type of industries and who's using that technology in those areas when it's being seen what types of beings are being seen the, the coming down to a reason for what they're 
they're who they are. So the whole idea behind an, an agency like MUFON is to, you want to discover the origin and the purpose for what are behind these craft, what are behind these beings that are being reported. That if you're looking at Ingrid Cold and you're seeing that, hey, he's saying that I'm here benevolently. I'm, I'm here on behalf of humanity and I'm kind of like a watchdog over this. I want to make sure that things are cool. And then you have the other types of aliens, the ones that came in contact with Phil Schneider and these say, hey, man, these gray and green aliens are abducting people. They're experimenting on 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 human beings and on, on other other animals. And and they're working with the government to create different types of uh, weapons and propulsion systems and metalloids and all this stuff. And, and, and so if they're nefarious and they're doing that, well, then what if somebody gets who knows who? who would take advantage of that one day. And I think, hey, well, Ingrid Cole and his people are here to make sure that does not happen. or They want to keep an eye on it. If something happens, well, then they can intervene. A month before Ingrid Cole met Woody Derenberger on the highway in West Virginia, two young boys in Elizabeth, New Jersey, would see a man with a similar description as Derenberger's. James Yensitis and Marvin Munez saw a strange man standing behind a fence looking at them with a big grin on his face and wearing glistening overalls. Not only was a grinning man spotted by these two boys, but another man in a nearby neighborhood claimed to have been chased by a green man. 41 miles away from Elizabeth, New Jersey, at the Wanakani Reservoir, several unidentified crafts had been spotted for several nights before these events and a couple nights after. So if you look at Morris County, just just going back to 1995, yeah, if I don't get into NICAP and all the other agencies that I have, uh, if I just get into this, uh, Moore, Morris County had tw- 12 sightings of triangles in the last 20 years. The two most recent EBE sightings in Morris County, square or rectangular type craft landed and humanoids emerged from the craft. One says that these humanoids were able to emulate human beings and interact with them. doesn't really specify what that means. The other one doesn't really get into the type of interaction they had. just makes the claim that humanoids emerged from this craft. We have heard this claim before, in part one. These beings possibly show themselves in a way we as humans feel comfortable with such as the way Connor described injured cold appearing the same way to Tanya. He looked the same every time he made contact with her for her comfort. And Terry Rist said injured cold was a black man. One of them says that an orange ball dropped from the sky and hovered over their yard and that it started to turn pink and red in color and that a humanoid emerged from the ship. Another one says that this woman was woke by something that ran towards her in her yard and that she fell down to the, on the ground screaming because she was afraid and that this humanoid reached down and tried to help her up off the ground, but she screamed again and it ran away. So just on, on, on these several right here, Camden, if you, if you look at Camden, New Jersey, and Morse County, New Jersey, well, they call them townships. So Camden Township and Morse Township, New Jersey, you have... 40 triangle sighting and eight extra terrestrial biological entity sighting or interaction with these beings that they describe as humanoid. One claims that 
they could interact with this humanoid being uh, through through thought. As far as the industry in this area, you're seeing the same industrial names, same company names that you've seen in some of these other flap areas. Yeah, so what started out is just looking at the a couple of specific industries in West Virginia. We looked at a couple of tech a couple of tech industry and then we looked at railroad. And then when you when you back check it and you go in and you look at the industry itself and you see where they're located and you go in to those areas, whether they're in different states or different counties. And you can go into those areas and you look up sightings for those specific towns or cities that they're located in. And you expand it out to the county. And then you could even go to an adjacent county to get an idea of of what, what's uh, what's been reported in the surrounding county. Once you do that, you could see a buildup of sightings that are specifically correlated with those businesses. There's no doubt that there's no doubt that these numbers are reflecting activity that's going on in that area. We started in one area, got an idea of what relationship tech had with EBE sightings and um, EBE contact. Then you look up the industry and then you find, well, there's a few of those in Minnesota. There's a few in uh, Ohio. There's a few in another state. And you then you get the county and the communities that those industries would would affect, you know, by, you know, by just their mere, mere presence there. And when you go back in and you research and you look at the data associated with that community, even if you, like I said, you expand it out to maybe the adjacent counties just to give it a wider base, you're seeing that the numbers are showing that that they fall into a, an area where it can't, it can't be coincident. There has to be something that's causing people to see these craft causing people to come in contact with these humanoids that they're they're claiming that you know they're coming across in, in many different ways time what is it about all of these beings and time could these beings really be from another time or another dimension Their clothes are not right for the time period they appear in, or are not yet in style. Their vehicles seem out of date, and their slang or lingo are out of touch with that era. John Keel listed many reasons why these beings foul up or intentionally make these mistakes. The poor bastards not only fail to understand who or what they are, but also where they are or what time period they're in. Some of these mistakes seem intentional and have some allegorical purpose, but others seem to be just mistakes. John Keel, The Mothman Prophecies. December 10th, 1967. Just before the collapse of the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a young college student was driving home after work in Adelphi, Maryland. As he was headed down Interstate 70, leading to Route 40, a large object was sitting on the road just ahead of him. As he approached the object and slowed down, 
he could see two men standing just next to the craft. They smiled at the young man who sat in his car terrified. The man who approached his vehicle was about five foot ten inches tall, wore light blue overalls, big thick soled boots, and he was tan skinned with large eyes. His expression never left his face. He spoke aloud to the young man saying, do not be afraid of me. He then gave his name, Vedig. He spoke to this young man for only a short time, and as he said goodbye, he said, I will see you in time. The man who would meet Vedig, his name was Tom, and he would later tell his incredible tale to his roommates, and he thought maybe it was a joke someone was playing on him. A few nights later, while working at a diner, Tom was again visited by Vedig. The strange man was seated in a booth drinking coffee. He looked at Tom and said, Do you remember me? Tom in amazement said, I sure do. He uttered something odd. It sounded as if Vedig said, quote, My presence here could be detrimental to the family trade. End quote. He asked Tom if he would be able to meet him the following Sunday, which Tom agreed. As he left, He looked at Tom and said, I will see you in time. After work that following Sunday, Tom was dropped off at his home. As he stepped out of the car, he heard a voice yell, Hey, Tom. It was Vedig and another man. They drove a Buick, a very old Buick, but in great condition. They drove for 30 minutes to what Tom said was their egg-shaped craft. He was ushered inside the craft and was whisked away. Tom recalls being in this craft for three to four hours until they arrived at a planet that Vedic had said was called Lanulos. After he was given a tour of the planet, Tom was taken back home. Tom, with excitement in his footsteps, ran into his apartment to tell his roommates of his adventures. To his surprise, they were awake, waiting for him. He was shocked because he knew it was late. He had been gone for at least six hours, but the clock on the wall read 1.30, and he was dropped off from work at midnight. A month after this event, Woodrow Derenberger and John Keel were in Washington, D.C. to do a radio interview. It just so happened that Tom and his friends were listening to the very interview. As Tom was listening to the radio show, he heard a man tell a story about his trip to Lanulos. Tom, in amazement, ran to the radio station, and it is there he met Woodrow Derenberger. I would say about six months ago, one of the women that come to my UFO meetings, my new farm meetings, she had asked me about water. She said, can you statistically show that sightings take place a lot around large bodies of water, you know, reservoirs, lakes, oceans? I said, yeah. So I went on just on to MUFON and I went and I put in uh, as a description, as a as a uh, keyword, water, lakes, you know, reservoirs, rivers. And fully about 70 percent of sightings take place around water. Uh, and there might be different reasons for that. It could be that humans congregate around water because we need it, you know, so we're not only live around lakes and reservoirs and we build them 
because we need the water. Water is also a huge, basically, they say it's a conductor for, like, paranormal activity. It's like I've noticed it in hauntings or whatever. You have a lot of places that are on the river or close to lakes and same kind of thing that are haunted because the water is supposed to contribute to that energy. Right. So you see with, uh, you see with these companies that are, that are working with, with NASA right now, um, what they're trying to do, well, not trying to do, I forget which company it was, the wood, which company it was. They, they made these two types of, I think they call them beetles and they're huge. Well, one of them's kind of small, but it's going to be for training purposes. The other one's huge. It's about the size of a truck and they've identified as an asteroid about the size of a house and they want to send this beetle out using a, one of the rockets that Elon Musk's company's making, and they want to take, they want to send this thing out. They're going to intercept this this asteroid. They're going to slowly bring it back into kind of close proximity to the moon, and then they're just going to pick it apart over time. They've created a system where they have, because space has no pressure and no gravity, they have, uh, it's like a, it's like a balloon, but it's made out of like a thin film of membrane. They're going to use uh, solar energy to pound this asteroid and it'll chip off little teeny tiny pieces and once they uh, once they do that they break it down it releases the water vapor that's contained in the asteroid and it, it's by osmosis brought into this membrane which will inflate to like the dimensions is, it's pretty large it'll contain i think they said a hundred a hundred tons of water so it'll condense inside this as ice. What they can use it for because it's pure. It's pure water. It doesn't have any contaminants. It doesn't have any, They can break it down into hydrogen and oxygen for propellants and everything. But water in its purest form is one of the best conductors possible. The only thing that stops water from like ocean water is the salt. But if you take so water in reservoirs, water in non-brackish water, non-salt water. So that's why you see a lot of sightings upriver where the water is, is not so, is not salt, it's sort of brackish, and it's very conductive. But also, companies need it for, for cooling their equipment. Uh, nuclear power facilities are built near water. They, they have intake pipes that cool the towers. They, so just say that these objects, that say that they're not from this planet, they're off-world, or if we have the technology to take water in these in these craft and break it down within itself into these energy cons. So you take in water, these crafts need to get the water, and then they break it down into hydrogen and oxygen to use as their own energy sources. That could explain that also. You know, it's not just that people are seeing they they got they're flying around the water. It's not like they need huge quantities of water, but if if these craft that are being and this is what they're telling us now that they want to go out and get this water from these asteroids well what if you have the ability just to take it from where you are because i i need it you know so it's like going to a gas station but you're just going to go down off the coast of myrtle beach and you're going to scoop up a little bit of water and now you have your you know your hydrogen and you have your oxygen you know or if you're up the hudson river and you need a little bit of water you know and and would it be too out outrageous then to suggest well we're keeping an eye on Indian Point new nuclear power facility in Verplank, but we need to get a little bit of water. So the Hudson River's right there, and we're going to go and take a little bit of the, the water. The majority of sightings are water, and then you have the other ones are around areas of tech and energy. So, and it's, it's clear to see that anything around, a lot of times airports and government facilities, the uh, military bases, they coincide with tech. 
So when you look at areas of tech that you consider where a lot of the black money is going, a lot of them are in a vicinity of, of, of military facilities. So a lot of them are in the vicinity of, air, of of army or naval bases or air force bases. They're not, you know, they're not they're not too far away from them. And it's where you wouldn't want to bring your tech and have to carry it all over. Almost ten years before Derenberger's meeting with injured cold, there was a UFO flap that started being reported all over the state of Nebraska. One encounter piqued our interest because of its similarities to an injured cold type encounter. Reinhold Schmidt was a grain salesman from Kearney, Nebraska. While on the road, he had an encounter that changed his life forever. On November 5th, 1957, while driving home, he came across a craft on the side of the road. He encountered three German-sounding men who seemed to be making repairs to their cigar-shaped object. Schmidt approached the men and made brief conversation with them. After the repairs were complete, the men said farewell and left. Schmidt called local authorities and they began to investigate. A few days later, he would meet these beings again. And again, and again. After a few of these meetings, they told Schmidt they were from Saturn. The leader calling himself Mr. X, because if he gave his real name, it was a code word to his location. They also told Schmidt where he could mine for Satorian-type crystals. Schmidt's credibility was called into question later on, as he was arrested and convicted of fraud. However, the other encounters that took place in this area at this time have not been discredited. Nebraska had a huge flap of UFO sightings uh, from this time and... From that time, what was like 50, 57, and I have it like 55, 64, 59, 67, 78, 79, 80, 81, 2003, 2007, all like in the same vicinity. I just did a superficial check on Nebraska. The, I did uh, just a few counties, the ones that you had mentioned to me, Union County, Alexander, uh, Stoddard County, Bollinger, and Perryville. And these are just... These are just off of one database over the last uh, 20 years. So you're talking about f- like 40 sightings over the last couple of decades, just in those, just in that one little area of Nebraska. You'll see a lot more. So a lot of these sightings, what happens is also, uh, which, which I didn't mention, where they show up, uh, they appear in, in, um, in clusters. So, so you might have some from... 1950 to 54 you'll have then it'll be quiet for a few years then then you'll have another cluster from 60 to 65 and then it'll quiet for a few years and then you'll have them again i think even uh jim goodall said that the same thing about he, he called it a halftime take note of that name because he becomes very important for us later of technology uh leaps in tech uh, a half so originally from 47 on might have been 30 years that tech jumped. And then it stops for a brief period of time. Then it's 15 years. And then it stops for a brief period of time. And then seven and a half years and so on. And that's almost, when I was talking to him, I said to him, that's almost what I'm finding in, my, in, my, in, the, in the data that I have. There are clusters of areas where it's not just one county in one state. 
it's multiple counties in multiple states. You'll see this the clusters of, of concentrated sightings, and um, so that's all. You know, it, it's it, the data supports that also. It it absolutely correlates with what you're saying when you have. Uh, I, I'm going to say that you know when you're when you're talking about these UAV sightings, um, you have to assume that there's a being on there or some some something intelligent is operating this craft. Uh, the fact that you're not coming in contact with these beings is meaningless for what we're talking about. You can make the assumption that these all have an intelligent being on that craft. It's maybe they've come in contact with other people and people aren't saying it or, you know, they don't have to at points. But they're there to observe and interact in their own way. We might not even know we're interacting with some of these beings. If they can do the things that they do, then, you know, we might not even realize that they're sentient beings and we're just taking for granted that they're other things. But the, the numbers are supporting exactly what you're saying. You know? there's, no, there's no doubt. Well, one of the interesting things about this Nebraska flap, and it all seems to, some of this stuff takes place on Interstate 80, goes across the state, and it comes from Omaha, and there's Kearney, Nebraska's on Interstate 80. Uh, there's also North Platte, which is a town which has a high number that I saw of UFO sightings over the last, I don't know, since the 50s. It's just crazy that it's all along that highway. Now, I looked up some of the, the one of the companies we looked into, obviously, was and they have some weird company building that's there, but it's under the name but it's owned by right, and it's right on the Missouri River which is right on the border. So again, we have another tech place that's on the river. Omaha, I think, has some UFO sightings. There's also a property that I looked up, and I only looked it up. It only showed up on Google Earth, but it's in the middle of nowhere, and it says it's owned by It's just it's, I brings up this property in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska along this, this Route 80, and it's like, well, what, what does this mean? Was there a building here at one point, or do they own this property in the middle of nowhere because they're doing some type of testing or whatever? I've seen that in a couple states where, well, they're, they have their hands in the aerospace, and some of these these properties that show up, and I have a map you know, down in our basement, and I have little stickers on all these places, and space is the main one that you're looking at because they're into all this this tech and all this futuristic you know aircraft they have they are the ones that have this property in the middle of nowhere for what specific reason i don't know are they building here do they have some underground bunker and it somehow shows up on google earth it's hard to say but it's just weird that again here's another state the middle of nowhere it's a state that's not highly populated it's a state that's you wouldn't think has a lot going on but here we are again flap areas and the same company showing up right and then the fact that they if you can go into some of these corporate histories and you can see where over periods of uh, of a few decades, they merger and they acquire smaller companies and then you can go into their corporate earnings uh, reports and see where there's been times where they've made massive amounts of money. The one company, I think it was in, uh, in 65, coincidentally, when Vietnam, when we officially went into Vietnam as a police action. That was the first time they turned a profit since they had um, merged with some other corporations to make a larger company. They must have properties everywhere. There's probably numerous properties titled in different names everywhere so that it, you know, it's easier to hide this way to people from, from looking into it. 
because they, they might not see the, the connection between between the original owners anyway and who it's titled to. I would think there's really not much of a difference. They retitle it into a so they merge with a smaller company and they retitle it into that company's name. And they could, nobody's going to be the worst. When we brought Chris into this research, we did not give him specific stories or reasons why we were looking at these locations. We simply gave him industry names, location names, and the name Indrid Cold. After we had many conversations about all the findings, myself, Annie, and Chris could not believe how everything seemed to be not mere coincidence. The fact is that you're seeing this correlation. The numbers don't lie. As smart as you are and as much research as you've done, you can honestly say that this is all connected. Without a doubt, these industries that we're looking into are connected to UFO phenomena, EBE contacts, the works. I mean, it's all connected. It's got to be. That's the way That's the way it looks. And so I went into this uh, with no data, with nothing to look at. And over the course, it started off with the just a few small uh, areas that you had that you had asked me to to check on UAV activity and uh, start to see the numbers. And then once you start to expand based on your search, of not only the, uh, the, the the companies, but then when you add in your UAV and EVE searches and you, you just see the data start to add up clustered in and around those specific counties and those specific states that are in conjunction with those uh, areas of industry and tech, the ones that you had originally named, and then you, you develop a, a pattern of more industry and more sightings, and it's all in that uh, northern corridor from uh, from from New Jersey, from that Hudson River Valley area through New Jersey, up through West Virginia and Pennsylvania, Ohio, across Indiana, Illinois, uh, into uh, Minnesota. And now you even add in, like you said, you know, Nebraska, uh, that small area, Nebraska on the Missouri River and Missouri across the river. So you, I have it where it not only is that area of Nebraska, but it, it's right across the river in Missouri, uh, uh, Cape Girardeau area. Uh, there's also a you know, famous sighting in Cape Girardeau that people don't really discuss that much, but it's a well-known case. Cape Girardeau crash is basically the start of this tech because they say now this phone you carry in your pocket, they believe that that resistor that came from that was obviously, you know, has been reverse engineered and, and redeveloped <laughs> over time. But they say that's there's millions of them in your cell phone now. Right. And even when you go back to 1947 when if you even if you discount Roswell and there are were a few other not as as highly publicized cases of craft that were recovered uh you saw a, an immediate leap in tech from like vacuum tubes to transistors to now you're talking about microchips and that's another thing that Goodall was saying about the half time in tech jump uh it seems to correlate with uh activity and um, interaction with, you know, off-world beings. And then if you go from there and then you look at these industries that are involved in that tech, 
and you see the clusters of sightings over those periods of time. So it all to one thing, and and it screams that it it just all adds up to the to the fact that these industries and these sightings and these contacts with off-world beings part and parcel to one another. There's just no there's the 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 numbers just don't lie. You know, you don't have to make it up because it's it's there. You just have to look at it print it out, you know, add it up, have it all together, and you can just put it right out in front of you and you can see it. You know, it's not like you're not making anything up. It's just getting it, having it in front of you. After this conversation, I finally asked Chris this question. Well, I know you've had personal experiences with this stuff, but at the end of the day, when you look at the correlations of the government having their hands in this, like we just talked about, the tech, you know, private businesses, dark money, all that stuff, with Injured Cold and Woodrow Durenberger starting out being the point of this story, the basis of this story, do you think that he was from a planet Lanulos? Do you think he was an ultra-terrestrial, or do you think it was some government entity just basically f- with this guy, Woodrow Durenberger? So in the beginning, I wasn't sure, and so I picked up the book, uh, and I read the book, and then uh talking to you and talking to other people and and looking at the data that i've accumulated over time and i believe that there's a possibility of multiverses and i think that that some of these off-world craft are they have the ability to traverse the uh the multiverse and they can create uh portals to come and they can you know they can they can go back and forth at times of their own choosing like i said before you know we we try to look at things through a human eye, you know, because that's that's what we're used to, um, and uh, so we try to put humanity into things that we see. Well, I would assume that these beings would attempt to do that too. So if they were going to reveal themselves to us, they would reveal themselves into a, a human form, something that we would be comfortable with and would be able to. Uh, to to interact with that's what you see with Berenberger. he people from lanulos appear to be human to him because that's what you would expect them to be that's the way that would be make you comfortable and make you then reassure you that they're here you know uh but as on a, a benevolent and so do i think that they're from another planet yeah my opinion is that they are do i think it's lanulos that's in our galaxy maybe but it's just as good a possibility that they're from another another universe and that they have the ability to traverse and come through, you know, presenting themselves in the most comfortable way that they can possibly do that. If that's the case, then there are other beings that can do the same thing. And then if they're interacting with the government and they're complicit in technology and the leaps of technology or whatever their reasons for assisting the government, assisting, you know, the military in doing that, well, I'm sure that there are others that are afraid of what you know, the, the possible outcome could be. And he stated that that Ingrid Cold was a uh, was here to help. Now, that's kind of what I, I see it as now. That's the way I look at it now, that some of these other off-world beings, they don't maybe necessarily trust their intentions or what their technology that they're offering or their help develop. Maybe it could lead to a bad outcome. Uh, and, and maybe this has been proven elsewhere. And now they're here on Earth. Maybe they've done this a thousand times over the course of the eons at other places. Ingrid Cole and his people are, you know, 
watching over us and making sure that things don't get out of hand. And, you know, could you say it's good and evil? I believe there's good and evil. It's a balance of good and evil, you know, uh, and we see it everywhere, good and evil. I would imagine that it would extend elsewhere. Uh, if they're aware of it, maybe he's here to maybe he's here to help. Maybe that they're here to help and make sure things don't get out of hand. The research that we have completed, in conjunction with Chris, Connor, Tanya, and a few other friends, seems to confirm two solid conclusions. One, there are definitely clusters of UFO and EBE sightings in the area where we reside, many of those sightings mirroring the next. The second connection to these sightings became more clear to us over time. The areas in which these sightings occurred followed specific natural resource barriers, barriers that also seem to be followed by specific technological and industrial companies. There was only one way to confirm our suspicions. We had to call in reinforcement. And this contact has more than 50 years of experience with every aspect of the phenomena that has baffled us for years. That's okay, too. But really, just to get started, um, if you'll kind of introduce yourself, tell everybody if they have no idea who you are, which is probably going to be a rarity for anybody listening to our show. Um, you know, I was, I, was, I was out of this loop for 10 years. I had four years in Hawaii, and then when I retired, I wrote books. And it wasn't until... I think it was March of 2019, I went to the uh, Big Phoenix Disclosure Con uh, because my my little buddy, Michael Schratt, uh, was going to be there. I knew uh, George Knapp and uh, Jeremy Corbell were going to be there as well. So that's why I went. And I said, I, I, everybody was in the conference, and I'm walking, walking around where the vendors are, and there weren't that many people there. And I, I sat down in the booth and talked to a guy named Doc Skinner and I introduced myself and his, his eyes got really big. He said, Jim Goodall? I said, that's me. The last question that I had, which has been um, one in our research that I think we have found most fascinating, is that in... In some of this research that we have done, whether it has been here in West Virginia or um, at really throughout the United States, there are these areas that ufologists call flaps, where they have all these sightings of, of uh, UFOs and different activity, men in black, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And they seem to follow a specific pattern. Um, there are lots of things that connect them, rivers, railways. There are these companies that some of them are tech companies and some of them are natural resource companies that follow this same path as well. And so Mm -hmm. there were a couple of them that keep repeating in our research, and I wonder if I say the name of any of these to you, if they would ring a bell or be something that you have okay. heard before. The first one is 
corporation. Oh, yeah. Is involved at every level of all the black programs in Area 51. This has been part two of I Am Cold, the story of Indrid. A special thanks to Chris DeMarais for his hours of research. Follow Chris on his Facebook group, MUFON South Carolina. This series was written, hosted, researched, and produced by Brendan Shea and Annie Weibel. Additional researcher and co-producer is Chris DeMarais. This story is still ongoing. See you soon.